welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Andy Whiting is the CEO of Nevrogenics, a biotech company spun out of his research at the University of Durham using dual-acting retinoic acid receptor modulators as a novel treatment for neurodegenerative diseases. Andy talked to us about his decision to leave academia to run the company, how he knew when the research had the potential to become a real drug, and why uncertainty and risks shouldn't hold back your career. This week on Careers in Discovery, I'm really pleased to be joined by Andy Whiting of Nevrogenics. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tom. Great to see you. Um, so, Andy, I'm really intrigued by the work you're doing in Nevrogenics and, and about these these novel treatments that you're developing for neurodegenerative neurodegenerative diseases, I should say. Um, got caught between neurodegenerative and neurodegeneration then. <laughs> yeah, I always uh, find it, it always gets stuck in my tongue as well. It's amazing how many times I can't say properly. Yeah, don't worry. Good, good. <laughs> good. Um, so tell us a bit more. Tell us about the approach you're taking. Tell us about the company. Tell us about where you're at with it all. Yeah, we're, we're at um, preclinical stage where we have a lead compound, which is showing some really interesting effects in uh, neurodegeneration. We, we haven't finalized on what sort of disease specifically uh, that we might go into but um, uh, we do have designs around uh, clinical trials and we mm -hmm. might hope to get into those in a in a year 18 months or so from now um, so it's a it's a drug that um, uh, we developed in academia in my labs uh, we found collaborative people at different uh, institutions to work with particularly Aberdeen University um, uh, had a bit of uh, money from BBSLC, uh, follow-on fund money that helped catalyze intermediate stages that allowed us to see that the kinds of compounds we were making and pick out a particularly good compound um, were worth taking forwards. Yeah. Um, classic university spin-out model um, and uh, been continuing to then raise a bit of early stage cash to do some efficacy studies in models and um, like all small um, uh, sort of biotech companies, we raise money seemingly all the time, seemingly all the time. So <laughs> it, it's um, it's that sort of we're at that um, stage where we need a bit bigger chunk of cash, mm. basically to do a much more advanced model um, in something that's closer to uh, to a human, and then and then uh, talking to the regulatory authorities, and then into humans. So, so the company's now taken over from the academic side of things, right. both in terms of the kinds of people we collaborate with. So it's more, um, you know, expert consultants in the regulatory areas, you know, um, um, uh, business development expertise, all of that kind of stuff that we're bringing into the company. So, so whenever Genics is is literally evolving from from being a shell to reality with mm -hmm. sort of salaried, not very many, but uh, early stage key salaried positions, which yes. which are all about um, much more about raising money on the development side of the company. Um, and we're still very much liaising, actually increasingly really with uh, with more R&D academics who are providing mm -hmm. additional sort of wider support and understanding, mechanistic understanding around the drug, uh, which will help us hopefully promote 
um, the the whole kind of arena around what we do as a company uh, help us reach out to investors, uh, potential pharma partners, all of yes. those things. So, so there's a whole raft of things that open up. So when you get out of the R and D uh, laboratory program, the more academic side, all of those other things that you need to work as an active entity is where we are. So, so Neurogenics does exist. We've been operating for a while. We've been you know, we've been paying, um, we've been claiming um, uh, VAT back on, on, on <laughs> paying for, you know, so we're actually act, acting as, a, as an organization, yes. you know, a salaried independent organization. Um, and, I've, and I've still got a foot in both an academic camp, albeit 20% of the time. So a day a week, um, that goes to zero shortly. Um, ah. i my last set of lectures in the academic, <laughs> which I miss hugely because I love lecturing and uh, yeah. Students love it, but I, I do. Um, I've done what will hopefully be almost my last marking because I won't miss that. Uh, <laughs> and um, and moving much more, um, albeit bubbly, you know, uh, uh, more than six days a week are involved with never. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, as as with any small company, so so I'm moving much more into that, and we've we've got um, we've got our own premises, albeit somewhat dusty, bare concrete floor premises, but it soon will have nice labs and offices and things like that so so we're it, it's literally that transition it's in a yeah. way maybe the most exciting thing because you know we're trying to do something phenomenally risky we know that um you know it's almost more well it's, it's more risky than probably opening a restaurant i mean i mean mm. notoriously that's one of the most business-wise it's one of the most risky things you can do isn't it open a restaurant yes yeah but, uh, especially maybe uh, post-covid and we're sort of literally in that that sort of transitional phase between spin out and independent, you know, fully operating own premises with a lead compound. We know what it does. We know what it targets. We know how it works mostly. Um, and we know it's still phenomenally looking, looking phenomenally effective. Um, and so it's, we need to then just go through all the rest of the steps to the point at which we will get into the clinic, um, a sort of a, a level of study, which will allow us to understand if, if we can bring big pharma on board, that they'll go, mm -hmm. okay, we like this, we will partner with you. You need a big pharma then to translate that into market potential and, and take it out into the world uh, as a whole. So so everything from, uh, is everything between here and that stage, you know. That. Yes. And then in, in the future, we would hope to have other drugs coming on the stream, which will be targeted at other diseases using a similar idea, but perhaps tunable for different diseases. So, so we... We see our approach as a platform. Right. So, so that's where the company is really. We, you know, we have the IP, we have the, we have all the official regular, you know, the sort of official existence in place, all the licensing uh, and everything. And it's just a case of getting on with it. Mm. It's, it is, um, it is, it is an interesting place to be. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I think this is the most exciting point in a company's development, right? You will have exciting milestones and you will have other things that happen, of course, but at this point anything could happen right and you yes. haven't you exactly. haven't accumulated yeah. the baggage that comes with a company evolving necessarily but you there's still all that potential there and i think it's uh if it was economically feasible to live in this next six months over and over again i think a lot of people would probably opt to do that but you know Absolutely. that's how you make progress right is moving beyond yeah. that but um, and I think, you know, it, it'd be interesting, I suppose, it was a big step for you taking the the full-time step to transitioning into that CEO role because it requires a huge amount of focus, right? And I, I imagine yeah, as much as you love lecturing and as much as you love the academic work you've been doing, 
it does take your focus away from the business at times, I guess. And and so that must be a relief to be to be moving into that full time. Yes, and it's it's a different it's a different skill set. I think I think mm. maybe you know it's not made necessarily something for, for for everyone. I can see how some people would be. I know academics who were repelled by the idea of becoming. <laughs> a I mean, a long long time ago, and maybe we'll talk about this later. But um, I, I worked in industry anyway, so I'm not unfamiliar. Yes, uh, and so I'm, I was. I've never been afraid of of, uh, of hopping over the over the fence, as it were. Um, but it is a completely different thing. And I'm an organic chemist, and I've I've never. Um, run companies before, although I've been involved in a couple of spin-outs. And, and actually, over the 40 years or so as an academic, all of the projects, I think, pretty much that we've been involved in have had industrial input or liaison or case awards or collaborative in some way. And uh, we've patented an awful lot of stuff and worked with industry throughout. So so I've always been very close to being in industry while not being in industry, if you see, see what I mean. Yeah. That, that sort of um, and 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 obviously in academia you do have that freedom to to yes if you do all your research and you do you know you do your lab demonstrating and you do all your lectures uh, but you can do all of that uh, applied work and working directly with solving problems with industry and things so it's mm -hmm. a good place to be so so it, it, it isn't a difficult shift however. I've never been a CEO of a company, and, and right. if we're successful, I won't continue into the long distant future because, of course, there are the, um, you know, the, the the much more experienced farmer CEO people who've had, you know, 30, 20, whatever uh, business development years expertise. They've done, mm -hmm. you know, they've delivered drugs to market numerous times, and we would probably need somebody like that at some stage. So I'm yes. a, I'm a, a caretaker, perhaps. Um, I care obviously passionately, passionately about what we do, and I'm and because because I suppose I'm the inventor, I kind of have to be the one that carries it through this stage because Absolutely. there is nobody else going to do that. And I think if yeah. you you know you not only have faith in that you have something interesting, but I think you have to have the commitment to take it through and transition through this stage, at which you can then pass it on to a, a much mm -hmm. more more expert more expansive more expensive uh, team, <laughs> um, for the next stages and, and that that's fine that's that's exactly how it should work so so I'm doing this now um, partly out of need partly out of commitment partly out of um, you know the area is a huge need so there are other reasons and, and both personal and historical and all sorts of things which mm. which help with the drive for that so I you know so I think all of those things have to come together. You have to care about what you do anyway. Yes. To do a good job in any job. Um, and this is one that I really care about a lot and I, and I love doing as well. So it's a part of me as well, I think. So, but I'm hopefully self-effacing enough not to hang on to it beyond the point of, <laughs> you know, if the board turned around to me and said, you know what, you're not doing the best job. Time to move on, Andy. I'll be going, okay, that, that's fine. Let it let it go to somebody who knows what they're doing. That's, that's And I think that's a really a healthy way to go into it right because um that will almost inevitably happen at some point and um it's very very it's very very rare the occasion where a ceo can take a business from the point that it's at today to to you know a listed business or a, a, a business running phase three trials or with drugs on the market or that kind of thing those things are so different yes that, um that i think having that awareness of that is a, is a really good place to start from so um 
well done for going with that. We have had help. I mean, you know, uh, we we brought a chairman on board who's doing right. a lot. Of, he's doing a lot of the financial raising. That's been absolutely essential. That's been game changing to have somebody of that level of expertise. So looking at corporate governance, uh, fronting up the uh, investor relations. Um, and also work very closely with um, uh, with someone who does all the business development mm. and other things. So I've needed support from the very beginning. Yes, a little bit through our tech transfer uh, office, obviously through through the university. But the universities are um, a, a little bit short necessary of, of the depth of expertise that's really of course, yeah, stage. So um, so we have needed to very quickly go out to people who are very committed to early stage, not um, not worried too much about necessarily remuneration before it's really possible so yes they they're willing to take on that risk and those are the people that that are absolutely essential so i'm simply mm. i kind of deliver the science package and help them to help me to put it in a format that we can you know co-present co-approach uh investors and uh, and companies and things about yes. what we're doing and change the messaging around who we're talking to, who's in, who's in the room at the time and for what purpose. So, so we do have a team together already. Um, it, it will obviously get more consolidated and it will change with time. Um, and, and that's a really interesting phase. And actually a key phase to success, you know, having the right people. I think a lot of it, you know, some of it's down to right time, right place, but especially right people in the room at the time. And if you don't yeah. have those, that's where it, that's where it, that's the point of failure, I think, early on. No, absolutely. And, and neurodegeneration, of course, is a, is an extremely complex challenge to solve. And um, it's good to see that there are more and more companies taking on that challenge, both in the UK and I think in the US as well. There, there's more and more companies coming through. Everyone has a slightly different approach to it, of course. So I mean, what can you tell us about the neurogenics approach? So our lead drug is um, is a retinoic acid receptor modulator, we call it, I know, a bit of a mouthful, but um, um, probably the best way of thinking about that. And, and, and hopefully, um, if you're like me, you, you like your broccoli and greens and, and healthy food and things. It's a really good source of, of uh, carotenoids, and that's where you get a lot of your vitamin A from. And vitamin right. A is uh, an interesting molecule because it's, 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 it's needed in all cells, in all mammals. Um, and it's it's stored predominantly in, in the liver, and it's it's shipped around in a kind of a protein uh, coat because it's it's not it's a, such a greasy thing that it's not it's not easily moved around without without a protein carrier. That can get through the blood brain barrier, gets into uh, neuronal cells, uh, into the brain, and all other cells, and it's metabolized into retinoic acid. Um, uh -huh. And there are a number of isomers of retinoic acid. There are a number of other metabolites, hydroxylated, ketonated, all sorts of things. Most of them, we actually don't, we actually don't know what they do, uh, which is actually how we, as a, as a, as a scientist, actually, how my research group got into this in the first place, right. mimic some of these and just see what small molecule mimics of these things did in biology. And, I see. And we were yeah. Surprised, I think, to say <laughs> the weird things that we saw, but um, the, these molecule, these these retinoic acid molecules, they act as um, uh, both, especially genomically, but we now know non-genomically, they trigger receptors to control different biochemicals. Okay. And um, uh, they have been studied a lot, um, particularly in the 60s through mid, maybe up to the mid-90s. Um, people knew that they, these things are controlling thousands of biochemical reactions. Um, and so they were looked at heavily by uh, Big Pharma uh, for oncology purposes. And there are a number of drugs on the market now based on synthetic retinoids in particular, mm -hmm. as well as natural isomers. So 
Voltron's retinoic acid being the uh, common one, but both 9 and 13 cysts are the other commercially produced and, and very um, key uh, signaling molecules for different biochemical pathways. And they're used to treat um, things like neuroblastoma and uh, um, uh, breast cancer, psoriasis, skin, a number of skin diseases and things. So, so these molecules have been looked at for a while, but big right. farms tended to drop them really from probably the mid-90s. Um, I think a lot of them were you know, associated with um, side effects and, and, and things, and, and the controllability wasn't really, I think, fully understood. Um, but we've been working this area mainly because uh, what's known with a lot of neurodegenerative disease is one of the key sets of signaling pathways which misfire our retinoic acid receptor pathways, so ones initiated by retinoic acid. Um, and you can, you can um, uh, by upregulating by, by addition of it in models, for, for example, uh, in vitro models, if you add exogenous retinoic acid, mm -hmm. you can re-trigger the expression of retinoic acid receptor proteins, and that can, that can uh, have impacts on inflammatory neuroinflammatory pathways uh, and all sorts of other things and, and, and proteostasis. So, so we knew, so we knew these molecules are important. Uh, we weren't looking to make drugs. We were looking to understand biochemical pathways. Yes. Um, but out of that came a, a drug development program in the end. I think we sort of, I suppose, developed a, a sufficient manual as to what to do, not do structure activity, uh, control these things in terms of genomic, non-genomic models that, reflect neuronal regeneration repair um to think okay maybe we can make drugs and if we can make uh, penetrate the blood-brain barrier which wasn't which is not a not a prime property of retinoic acid analogs which is why all trans retinoic acid is produced in cells by um uh, uh catabolic enzymes or metabolic enzymes um in situ because it's a terrible drug nature's managed to make uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh retinoic acids into good drugs so they, they, right. they don't move around the, the um uh, around the body they are produced in situ in cells but are necessary for controlling so many biochemistry so so we wanted to make mimics that could be could pass the blood brain barrier could be druggable molecules mm. uh, initially for, for a while seemed like a bit of a a bit of a tough test to take something inherently, you know, sort of um, ambiphilic, uh, very, very um, uh, non-polar in large parts of it and turn these things into druggable compounds. But that really was the thing that we took on. And we we yes. made some terrible compounds that they don't do the things that we wanted, but we've made some phenomenally exciting ones that do do the things we want to do and control the pathways that we want and don't interfere with the pathways we don't want so so that's what we've been so it's, it's so these are retinoic acid receptor molecules that that are uh that we can keep away from uh off target tox effects mm -hmm. and controllable um on target effects uh, and particularly focused around uh upregulation of, of uh, proteostasis related biochemical pathways and of course, yes. we know with, with neurodegeneration, the proteostasis is a huge issue. And whether it's, you know, beta amyloid or tau or alpha-synuclein or uh, all the you know, um, TDP43, mm -hmm. uh, we know that misfiring of protein proteostasis is, is, is one of the big problems in neurodegeneration. Yeah, I see. Interesting. And, and so as you're, as you're kind of exploring the effects of these these molecules and, and you realize there's druggable properties there or there's potential druggable properties there and and start to work on those what what was the point at which you thought this has really got legs we need to we need to take this 
beyond the university and and spin it out into a, a, its own entity to really focus on this. Uh, we got some um, we got some funding from um, PBSC. It was a mm-hmm. follow up fund, so we we had a lead compound that did. Um, so we, we we had a particular. Uh, so one of the very early drugs we designed to, to act purely as a mimic of all transretinoic acid itself. So it, it mimics the lowest energy conformation structure uh, of uh, all transretinoic acid. And it, it did what all transretinoic acid did in all cellular mod- um, in vitro models that we looked at, but about a 10 to 100 times uh, more efficiently in terms of order of magnitude. Right. Because the, these molecules are not easily metabolized because a lot of the a lot of the catabolism that that, that uh, focuses on controlling relative concentrations of retinoic acids within cells because there are so many effects. So there's a lot of cellular machinery. Right, yes. You know, isomerases, um, uh, oxidative enzymes, all of those sorts of things that control and either excrete or, or help to produce uh, these these compounds in situ. This, of course, the synthetic ones don't don't have all of the all of the, a lot of the motifs which which meant they were much less susceptible to sip oxidation and things like that mm-hmm. so they have a profoundly different effect and they much more long live within tissue so you can start to see downstream effects from longer term exposure of these without the cell kind of you know changing um the uh, the substrate into other things right so, um so we so we knew that we had profound effects the, the question was could we make them into decent drug molecules? And that was what the follow-on fund was about. You know, could we turn them into things that, for example, water soluble? So yes. our early leads had similarly miserable solubility in water, you know, less than less than 10 micromolar, for example, in water. And then we made some analogs that were over hundred micromolar soluble in water. And one of our leads is over hundred micromolar soluble in water. That seems a profound penetration effect. So, mm. so, so a number of molecules we've made. So we started to look at, um, uh, CNS exposure. So, you know, uh, injecting a set amount of a compound into in, into uh, uh, and into a, into a test animal, see where it where it distributes within within the brain within the CNS, and that allows you to assess how well it penetrates the blood brain barrier, right. um, and also how it builds up in different tissues. And certainly, we see for different compounds have different levels of buildup in different tissues. So you can almost get the idea, well, can you tune these molecules to have more or less penetration to the cerebellum or the, um, or, or, you know, the frontal cortex. And of course, if you want, if you want something that's more frontal cortex, it might be more FTD useful, you know, for treating, you know, frontotemporal dementia where the cortex is, is more damaged than the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you, that's one of the things maybe we have in mind for the future. So, so at that point, we thought, ah, maybe we're dealing with compounds that could be drugs. Actually, yeah, I see. We could turn things that have inherently been terrible drugs and the pharma industry had immense problems with in the past and have to use at very high levels of exposure. And so they hit uh, on and off target tox uh, problems into things that could be much more controllable, could mm. be much lower levels. Um, and the kind of efficacies that we've been looking at um, um, in some of our um, screening models, we were we were down at the sub nanomolar level. So we wow. were looking at level, you know, three to five orders of magnitude lower levels of um, uh, uh, used in models than we would need with, for example, transretinoic acid or our early lead synthetic molecules or other commercial ones that are on the market, right? Uh, which are not effective in the same kinds of models that we've been using anyway. So, um, so these sort of these compounds showed that phenomenal level of properties but we're also showed um i think we've just, i think we've realized that 
And I think other people are beginning to, thankfully, as well. I think probably long overdue that complex diseases need complex solutions. And the idea of, you know, single target, single drug, no side effect drugs, you know, magic bullet type thing. Yeah. Don't exist. And yeah. actually, in a way, to embrace the idea of multimodal activity is a good thing. Yes, you need to iron out all of the effects in mechanisms you don't want operating because they're not, they're, they're, they have a negative effect. But then you can hopefully control multi-mechanism uh, drugs in a positive way. Um, but of course, it's a lot more difficult. But you have to take the time to do that. So we know our, our compounds are at least dual acting. And mm -hmm. there's another mode of action, which is which we have yet to fully identify, but we know is operating for, for a number of reasons. And, um, and But we've kind of embraced that and go, OK, well, if we control all of these pathways positively, we, we have a phenomenally useful drug. We just yes. need to understand how it works and for future generations to be able to, to, be able to build on that. So, so the so the realization of when we did we have a decent drug was that um, penetration mm -hmm. and very 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 low uh, exposure levels needed um, and compounds that were clearly um, showed positive effects in models that could be viewed as being uh, regenerative and obviously you know neuronal regeneration is the holy grail right. yes. You know, pharma at the moment has compounds that slow disease at best. Um, what you want is though to reverse them. I mean, isn't that? I mean, we you know we think with oncology. You go back fifty years. You know, when we were looking really heavily at oncology and huge amounts of investment become be coming in. Now we think of most of most cancer is treatable. Right. Um, and, and a lot of it's reversal. Yes. Okay. You chop bits out and all sorts of things as well. But but you know the therapies change profoundly. And if you catch it early, so yes, diagnosis, early diagnosis, the earlier the better. But the treatments are getting phenomenally better. Mm -hmm. And if you put in that level of investment and you can reverse some of these things, you can treat them. Then you know surely it's about investment, understanding, time, research, etc. Surely that's doable with yes with neurodegeneration that you can not just slow, not just stop but reverse and repair and that's that's we think that's where we should that's where the academia and industry should be aiming yeah um, because without that you know we don't that huge need of a billion suffers of neurodegeneration on the planet today they have no 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 real hope and i think we need to we need to do something about that yeah absolutely and i think the you know the the need clearly justifies the complexity right and the and the challenge that it yes. that it creates um, I, I think something we talked about just before we started recording, actually, Andy, just picking up on what you're talking about. So I, I imagine there are um, lots of programs in academic institutions around the country and around the world who show that show promise in a similar way to to yours, did, to the way that yours did, um, that never really go anywhere. Um, and I know you have you have sort of come to a realization or, or you've you have an opinion about why this sometimes is it'd be interesting to talk about that as well no absolutely and in fact um i think i've mentioned this in the last couple of uh, talks i've done about mm -hmm. where we are as this sort of you know transitional company between you know having gone from r d in the lab in a in a research environment more more research-based environment to a more sort of industrial uh, application side yeah it's a really interesting point i think um uh, I think many academics get to the stage of going, okay, we've got something really interesting here. We've been doing this research in this area for many years. And, and the people who are doing that kind of work tend to, I think, bifurcate naturally into two, two types. Those who are 
always going to stay academics and researchers right. and, are, and are almost afraid of what the next steps are. And I think they trust universities to be able to take IP or results or something else and bring other people into the conversation um, to develop a spin-out company, mm-hmm. a, a development pathway, a licensing program. And, and I think I've met many academics who say, oh, well, we've got some really interesting IP and we're offering the, you know, the, the licensing opportunity around. And that's always makes me laugh because I'm, I'm not sure who's actually doing this. But, right. you know, I've never met anyone who really, um, universities do, sort of, you know, they do have, you know, showcase some of the things that are happening. Uh, um, uh, it's true. Very, very few examples where, where this is really kind of taken up and, and university, universities, tech transfer organisations, as much as they, they try, have really the right uh, network, you know, because they're working across vast numbers of different um, research areas, subject right. areas things and it's they to find the you know that needle in the haystack appropriate match expert who's going okay that's the that's the data i was looking for i really would like to take further and i yeah yeah yeah. i've got contests i i know almost no examples the people who are translating this are people like myself who who are not afraid of uh, for whatever reason maybe can the stage they are in their own careers you know are they um comfortably at the point where they're not as worried about their pension anymore because sure, they, yeah. yeah yeah because these these are key really key indicators yeah. especially if somebody's going to say to you well you know how much skin have you got in the game you know and you sort of say well you know i've got um you know i've, I've got to, uh, lots of dependents i'm early stage i've got a huge mortgage and i really can't risk it that is a perfectly uh, understandable and acceptable thing to to realize in which case you need to be able to find early stage mm-hmm. to allow if so if you're really committed to spinning something out obviously risk is a huge factor um and you have to be cognitive of the potential uh, for things to go wrong because early stage high tech companies small molecule <laughs> generation you might argue yeah. is a tricky combination uh, of course um so so i think you've got to you've got to want to to jump over the fence and sort of go okay I'm going to take it forward to a stage uh, upon which if we're successful, the right kind of development team, company team, commercialization team will naturally take over and take it yes. forward because they they will only do that from a certain point of achievement uh, where, you know, early stage goals have been made. It's clear that something's going to get into the market. It's going to start making money and, and they won't come on board until often that risk is mitigated sufficiently. Mm-hmm. So I think you've got you've got to know that you can bridge this period, and it can be either long or short, depending upon where you are in the world, how much money you've got. Um, you know, it's a very different development scene, for example, in the US compared to here. Yes, uh, raising early stage capital is much more difficult here than it is in the US. They tend to raise an awful lot more, but their expectations are high. So, all sorts of things, factors like that, come into play. And I think you know who's around at the time that these decisions need to be made about who, how, timescale. Um, is, is a is a really interesting one, and there is no there is no magic formulation. But the one thing that's clear is that the person who's probably done the, most of the you know generated most of the ideas, you know, is is probably the person who's who's orchestrating team of people who are working together is probably going to have to be that person who goes. Okay, yes. you know what the only way it's going to go forward from now on is if I front it. Yes, with support of appropriate people. Yes, you have to find those. Yes, those are game changing. They have to be the right ones, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But without without that person, without the care, 
the drive, the knowledge, um, I don't think it will, it, it can get anywhere. And that's actually not an easy conversation to have with people, to say to people, and when I've been giving lectures, in fact, one up in Newcastle, not, not so long ago, is to say to people, well, you know, you guys are making, you know, designing drugs in different applications, different reasons, some in neurodegeneration, yes. Um, so what will you do when you hit that really interesting conversation? Mm. Do you know what you're going to do, how you're going to do it? Do you do you think somebody else will take it over? Because these are the things you need to think about. Because if you've got some really interesting compounds, actually the rest of us in the rest of the world with that with that need waiting for drugs to appear need you to go enough people to go. I'm going to. I'm committed yeah. enough. I want to take this forwards. But the consequences are major. They certainly are major. No, absolutely. And I suppose there's several things that that come as a, a side effect of that almost in that um, you will almost certainly be the person who knows the most about the potential of this program, right? Uh, if you've if you've been the one who's developed, you know, several years worth of knowledge around it at that, at that point. And I guess from everybody else that's potentially going to get involved, if if you are willing to put your your uh your your skin in the game as you say and put yourself on the line put your career on the line to to push this forward then that is a good sign and similarly rightly or wrongly even if it's for personal reasons and you're not willing to do that people will also take that as an indication of your belief in the program and you and it requires someone who really believes in it right because there's so many reasons that it won't work that you have to have absolute conviction that it will or it could at least it could that's um, really and i think you're absolutely right and of course one of the reasons many companies fail actually is not well there are probably two reasons but in fact the one that's i think least um often from what i've seen what i've encountered is the the research and the results and the quality of the information and the data think, okay there might not be quite enough um you know might need some more studies but that needs cash um, uh, and grants and things but actually i think it's down to two things it, it's the right time the right people in the right room and that naturally comes together yes and and it and you're right it's that level of commitment that somebody can go on a what might be a wild goose chase or a wild ride where we've got, you know, I mean, I find it exciting, but I'm able to, I'm lucky enough that I'm at a stage of my career where I'm not so worried. And and I think, I, I think there is a slightly unreasonable for, and, and I know why investors say this, that, you know, I want to see that you've got skin in the game mm. and I get that. But, you know, if, if you're a, you know, if you're a 35 year old and you've got, you know, two young kids and a mortgage, um, uh, and, and you know, I got my first mortgage during the, the during the Thatcher years, when my mortgage went from sort of seven and a half percent to fifteen percent over. Right. <laughs> and that was a difficult time, I tell you. Yes. Um, so, so if somebody said to me, "Well, uh, are you going to do something phenomenally risky and jump ship and do this?" I would have thought maybe very differently about the way I do it. So, so I think there is a level of unfairness. Um, it's a very different thing saying, "Well, I'm 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 not sure that you've got commitment if you can't do A, B, or C." Um, because that is so 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 personal, so personal to you as to whether you really can commit and at what level. Uh, yes, there's a big chunk of that which is inherently about one's character, but it is a really difficult decision. And I think, and, and of course, I would err on the side of supporting academia. Mm -hmm. Lived through through that some financially difficult times in my life. So, but I think you you know I I make the point to people well. You know, you can judge commitment by someone's actions as right. well. 
and um, you can go so far. Universities, I think, could help bridge the gap better. So um, in, uh, I have a, I can't remember what it is now, but a certain percentage that when I start, first started to spin out companies, I was, eight, I think it was about 12% or something, random number of my time I could use to help uh, while still being fully salaried by the university to help develop spin out companies. Well, 12% doesn't go very far. Yes. And, and the university is slightly cheeky because 12% of what, 60 hours that I do, but get yeah. paid for 35, you know, <laughs> the universities have always had the ability, um, I think, to, um, uh, to be some a little disingenuous about the way in which they uh, allow academics to work uh... on projects while benefiting from the fact that, you know, they're already probably uh, research scientists don't do things on based on a 35 hour week. That's for sure. Right. Yes. Um, you know, that you would never do anything as, as a research active academic. Um, and most academic families uh, would know that, oh, yes, you're going on holiday this year. Oh, it just happens to be a city where there's a conference. <laughs> so I've, I've, you know, I've continually had a hard time from my wife saying, oh, we're in Boston this year because which conference are we going to? Yes. Yeah. You know, that level of commitment is there. And universities, I think, do exploit this. Um, and somewhere there has to be uh, a balance. And I think, you know, inside academia, people understand the need to translate the fact that, you know, ref um, uh, um, uh, studies, of course, depend on translation as well as research and all of the other things that we do and, and um, environment and things. I don't think people outside understand actually that multifaceted complexity that academics have to have. And then if you add another huge strand, yes. And a little bit of translation sounds like, oh, I, I've got a patent. We're going to exploit it. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means another three, four, five days a week. You know, it could be, you know, and as you get further through that program, it's more and more days. Uh -huh. and the days that you've got, you know, that you need to go into that program in order to uh, have a greater chance of success. So yes. the commitment is huge and, and, and investors don't always get that. I don't think universities really quite get that uh, and they certainly they're certainly not very good at, at, at putting in financial support yes they'll pay for um you know writing the on pattern and things like that mm. but at some stage they'll usually want it back and they take <laughs> shareholding so they're very good at taking multiple slices of cake right yes. always giving back i think in in, in due form um I, I think he i think that could change it could certainly be better the level of understanding about how the translation process works there's a gap uh, there's a clear gap i think there and I think people like myself are willing to take the chance and also to, as we're doing now, discuss it with people, try and get people to understand what yes. this is like and, and where the gaps are. And of course, government, well, uh, uh, government seem to understand not very much, most of the time. <laughs> and we, we, you know, when they do come around to understanding something, it's usually a bit late. It's usually uh, targeted in a way in which, um, you know, the, 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 the horse is largely bolted very often. Um, so you have to work around all these things because, you know, you, you know what you need to do at any particular time. Um, and it's whatever the job needs. It's whatever it takes. And not everybody is able to do that. And I think that's understandable. So so those, those are the, that very complex discussion because because every single situation will be different. There is no there is no one size. No, bit. of course. And there never will be. Uh, and what works for one person or at one time in one stage of one development program won't, won't ever be reproduced anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And look and timing, I think, play a huge part in this. And that that's the that is certainly a story I think that needs to be got out there more because it's I don't think that necessarily is a reason to be afraid of things. I think if you're naturally the kind of person who's adventurous, 
and your families are willing to be adventurous with you and understanding, <laughs> it is a it is a wonderful thing to do. But you have to understand the risks, and if and 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 also understand that well, for a well educated uh, person, you if even if things went wrong, you're always going to be able to pick up something else and do something else. That, you know, and and that would be obviously worst case scenario, but. Mm. You know, I think we we live in a world where we expect change, and and you can embrace change and risk, uh, and that's the way I I think I've looked at it. Um, and, and even earlier earlier in my career, when when I wasn't uh, more financially stable, problems I am now because I'm later in my career, very much later in my career, I was willing to take a level, a level of risk. So I've all, always done that, knowing full well, well, what's the worst that can happen? Well, I'll get right. a job somewhere else, right? You know. Um, you know, I think we're lucky in that way because, you know, we're educated, you know, CV, publications, uh, it may not be what you want and yes. you may not achieve what you're really after, but you'll pay the bills and and uh, somehow keep the mortgage going. And yeah. And I, and I think people underestimate that. The, the, the survival mechanism in your brain is... is very effective uh, avoiding risk right and you know i think when people ask what's the worst that can happen i think what they often tell themselves is well i'll never get a job again and my family yeah. will starve and we'll lose our house and we'll be living on yeah. the street and you know it, and it's an end of world scenario isn't it and i think you know of course conceivably that could happen but as you say it, it's unlikely for someone who has the level of training that, that most of the people who would find themselves in that situation have you know um i think crafting a crafting a narrative around it's important right so to be able to communicate to people well that i tried this and it didn't work and these are the reasons and this is what i learned from it i think that's important um but yeah I, usually the worst case scenario is not as much of a worst case as people people expect it might end up being no, I think you're right, and you have to be realistic because yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of, most tech companies don't succeed yeah. uh, in in the longer term. And all of the people I've known who've been in those different kinds of businesses, you know, they've gone on to do some have gone on to do better things. You know, they've yes. got, you know, come up with something better in the future. But because they've had that experience, and that might include me, um, because they've had that experience, they can they can kick on a bit better, quicker, faster more informed um and be better at identifying yeah so so i think you're right and those others who completely jumped ship and done something completely different have been happy with their you know different career directions in education or um or, or whatever it is you know even though somebody's sort of done more kind of you know counseling and that kind of thing you know something completely different having been a having been a scientist and they they love what they do. Yes, on and that's that's okay. So I think you're right. People are naturally adaptive, but they're also you're right, inherently risk averse and afraid of taking risk. And 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 um, and actually, I, I enjoy that. And you know, mm. certainty I don't find upsetting. I actually find it exciting. Yes, I sort of think, okay, well, if everything goes wrong tomorrow, you know, will I start cashing in my pension? Well, I think, well, if I need to, I will, because <laughs> <laughs> you do what you have to do, or. I would find another job somewhere else for a few years until uh, you know something that you know similar. I would look around and see what's there at the time, and you can't yes. pre these things. You have to see what's there on the day, on the week, and the, uh, and go from there. Yeah, and I think I think running a business, whether it's a biotech company or or any type of business, really is 
it's one of those things that you can only learn to do by doing it. And so the first time that you do it, you're going to screw a lot of things up and hopefully the company survives that. <laughs> but if it doesn't and uh, or, or, you know, if the if the science doesn't work or the program doesn't advance, so you can't raise the money, you know, lots of things that could happen. You've hopefully learned from those things that you screwed up and you don't make the same mistakes the next time around. Right. And so so, you know, there's a. I've talked to a lot of people about this as being one of the differences between the US kind of approach to entrepreneurship and and ours in that actually sort of as a CEO, the failures are almost like a badge of experience. They're almost like the validation that you've been through it as long as you can, again, demonstrate what you've learned from that. Whereas I think our perception is often that, um, well, if you fail, that's it, you're done. I think you've got to make it work the first time. I think there's a little bit of that, but I think I think you've also got to develop a fairly thick hide as well. So uh, I think mine's getting more rhinoceros-like by the day. <laughs> um, and as an academic, anyway, you know, you used to you, you used to getting proposals kicked back from often sometimes a bizarre reasons from referees who you think haven't even read the proposal. Um, and I think the same is true when you're judged by somebody else who's not gone through it in your sort of business career as well. That um, if it were that simple, then there'd be an awful lot more of those businesses showing success and things. So, they, you know, I think it, it really isn't that simple. Um, and yes, making mistakes is OK. And as, as human beings, I think that's the thing that we should embrace. And it, in fact, in most of the walks of life and as parents, we know that making mistakes is part of the growing learning process. Yes. And I, I fully agree with you. I think there is that level of understanding in the, in the US. I think there's better... Um, stewardship and, and direction as well you know there's a wider community that's more willing to engage sometimes early stage without wanting, you know skin in that game initially see how something goes you know that that sort of benign tutoring uh, supportive tutoring which, which 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 there are people here but they usually want something for it you know um, right and you don't always necessarily some of those people who who tout that kind of business don't always seem to quite seem to understand that they seem to be doing more for their own gain rather than actually being genuinely interested in helping through a stage and i've met a few people like that so so i think who of course in any team anyway you've got to be very careful to work with people you know you can get on with it's a bit like over the years of my not always necessarily successful but in my own research group you know take on phds i sort of say to interviewing them well you know, you have to like me because you're going to have to put up with me for a, a long time. And, uh, and and I need to like you. We have to be able yeah. to work together. This, this is a relationship and a very close one for a, quite a long time. Um, and it's even more true, I think, in, in, a, in, a, in a newly developing spin-out company. Um, because when it gets really tough, uh, it does get tough. And you sort of figuratively have to kind of go to the cash machine now and again to help things. And, you know, because cash flow is always an issue early yes. stage. Um, and you have to be, you know, you have to have understanding family and friends and everything else to be able to, kind of <laughs> to get through that. That is a necessity and it's not, it's not simple. So yeah, you get to ride the the raves a little bit, the ups and downs, the troughs, the highs. Um, but that is, that adds to the excitement. And I think you've got to embrace it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at least you have a hand on the tiller, right? At least you have some element of, not necessarily control, Rick but influence. Hard, yeah. influence. <laughs> and keep a smile on your face and hopefully know the direction you're going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. 
Well, Andy, normally in these interviews, we we talk about your career story and your journey through it. But we we've, we've spent so long getting into this that that we've run out of time. But I think there's a lot in there for people, and a lot um a lot of advice people can take from it. And I think there's been a really really useful and and productive discussion. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. Best of luck with uh, Nevrogenics, and yeah, and we'll certainly uh, ours too. And we will be keeping an eye out for you. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients, and saving lives. Thank you.